Welcome to the Wake Before the Day podcast with my parents, Clark and Bobby. We're excited to talk about the Bible and the Holy Spirit adventures. Thanks for listening. Matthew 14, um, pretty intense chapter. And I'm going to come right out and say something that might be a little controversial. I don't like how John the Baptist handled this situation. All right. I don't like it. I don't think it was a wise call. Maybe he felt called by God to do this and it doesn't say that in scripture, but uh, we'll unpack that in just a moment. What happens in verse 1 through 12 is John the Baptist is gone um, into the city and has called out Herod the Tetrarch because of his sin. What happened was Herod dismissed his first wife unlawfully. He essentially sent her away. She was the daughter of the king of Petra and sent her back home packing to her parents. And then he went and married his brother's wife, Herodias. What's happening here is Herodias and her daughter did not like John the Baptist because he was calling out their sins, saying, what you're doing is immoral, it's evil, and it's wrong. And he just calls it what it is. And so what happens is this girl is dancing, and commentators talk about when she's dancing, we're not talking about square dancing here, we're not talking about you know, just country line dancing or whatever. We're talking about inappropriate, immoral environment. And it's not godly. It's not helpful. And so Herod, who's probably been drinking a few, asks, what do they want for the birthday? And they say, the head of John the Baptist. Herod's afraid of men, and he's afraid of people knowing that this is going to cause a reaction, but he still gives it to them. He grants their request, and they behead John the Baptist here. What happens to Herod, and this is just from history, it's not in the Bible, Herod is eventually called into combat by his ex-wife's father, so his ex-father-in-law. It's the king of Petra. He calls Herod out in battle, and Herod loses. So he goes home with his tail between the legs. And then to make matters even worse for Herod, his brother, King Agrippa, accuses him of treason against Rome. Then he banishes him to some far-out province called Gaul, which no one wants to go to. And it's there Herod and Herodias end up taking their own lives. Like, talk about depressing, huh? So I want to go back to the beginning here. John the Baptist calling out their sin. I'm not a fan of the strategy. Maybe God called him to that, and we're not sure. But as I'm continuing to grow older and older and seek the Lord and then be immersed in Los Angeles Hollywood culture here, I'm becoming more encouraged to focus on God, the kingdom of God, and not so much the pagan immorality of the world around me. Here's why. I don't expect them to follow the rules of God. I I actually now fully expect them to do heinous, gross, despicable things. I'm not going to shout at them and scream at them. I'm not going to slander them. What I am going to do, though, is when I see Christians on a slippery slope starting to maybe accommodate things of this world, or think that certain things might be permissible or okay because you know everybody at work thinks it's okay or at school thinks it's all right. That's where you address the things of this world saying, hey, this is not okay. Like the intro for the Grammys a couple weeks ago. Just straight like satanic worship. And I'm not surprised. And so you focus on God. You move on and go, church, we're in exile. Accept it. This land is not the land of Israel. Hasn't been, it's not, it's not going to be. God's calling his bride, the church, 
to follow the Lord in the midst of this pagan culture, to be kind, to be gracious, like we said in Daniel and in Jeremiah, to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. That's what we should be giving our attention to. Sure, we have an awareness. Culture's broken. It's messed up. Yeah, it is. But follow the Lord in it. Where's the Lord working? Where is he calling you to a fruitful ministry? Um, I I don't think it's worth most of us getting crucified in culture right now, calling stuff out, um, when they are playing by a different set of rules. I hope that makes sense. Like, why did I expect them to be generous or to forgive their neighbor or to, you know, walk in sexual purity as is laid out by God in the scriptures? Because they don't believe in the scriptures. And so... That's kind of where I'm at there. And I wonder, you know, how John the Baptist might have been used had he not done that. On the flip side, maybe it's not in scriptures and God called him to do this and, you know, some good came from it. But you enter back into the text now and you put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Jesus was close cousins. He was his first cousins with John the Baptist. They grew up together. They each had prophecies about them. They each fulfilled these prophecies. John the Baptist was the one who was going ahead and preparing a way of Jesus through the wilderness so people could repent and come to him. I don't know if you've lost somebody you really love, someone that was like a peer, maybe a sibling or a cousin, but it really, really hurts. It really hurts. And I just wonder what Jesus was going through in that moment. I think Jesus would have loved to have gone and be alone. But if you read your scriptures and you jump from verse 12 to 13, it says, Jesus, when he heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. It just blows me away that Jesus in his humanity lost his cousin. I'm sure who he loved dearly and was grieving and mourning. And it's out of that he goes, I'm still going to care for my people. I'm still going to give them compassion. I'm still going to love on them. I'm still going to heal the sick. I'm still going to cast out demons. I'm still going to preach about the kingdom of God. It like absolutely blows my mind the kindness of God. And the depth of his love right here. There are times when you're hurting and the last thing you want to do is give love to other people. It's vastly unnatural to our flesh. And yet Jesus does that. But the story gets a little more wild. Eventually this crowd gathers and it's called the feeding of the 5,000. But they did it because culturally you count the men. But that was just the men. So you're looking at 15 to 20K. 15 to 20,000 people are sitting there. And Jesus has been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, probably telling them parables, a number of other things that he and the disciples have been speaking about and teaching already. If you watch The Chosen, I highly, um, sorry, if you don't watch The Chosen, I highly recommend it. If you watch The Chosen, I'm sure you know what I'm about to say. Season three was phenomenal. I'm a huge fan. I encourage you to check it out. Now, it's a it's actors and actresses. It's a portrayal of scripture. So far, I've done a really good job of looking at what does the Bible say? The The creator of the show, his name's Dallas. He has a rabbi that keeps him in check to make sure the Jewish culture is represented accurately. And he has the New Testament sc- scholar from Biola who also keeps him in check and makes sure like, yeah, this is what we know about the early Christian church in the times of Jesus and the Judean and Galilean countryside and all these things. They, they keep him in check. And so it's at this scene, it just blows my mind to see all these people coming to Jesus. Because words out, this is the guy who's raised the dead, has healed the blind, has healed the, the, the crippled and the leper. And now people want to know about this rabbi. And so if you imagine in a world with no microphones and no real amphitheater they can just walk into, 
How did 20,000 people listen to Jesus? And I love how The Chosen depicts it. So if you are able to download The Chosen app in the App Store, and they have all the episodes for free. But in season three, in the specific episode, The Feeding of the 5,000, what happens is Jesus is teaching, and he starts spreading out his 12 disciples in like 50-yard increments. And as he shouts in his preaching, they hear him, and then they preach and pass the word on. And as they hear each other, it's almost like a chain reaction, if you can imagine that in your mind's eye. They hear Jesus, then they say it. The next person hears them, then they say it. And they just keep going back and forth so people can hear what Jesus is talking about. And it's making waves. People want to know what's happening here. I love it. And Jesus, at the end, feeds them and gives them more than they need. Can you imagine the disciples being there? They each have a basket full. They're all satisfied. And it's like God is going to give you more than you truly need. It might not be what you want, but when it comes to life and what you need, God's going to give us what we need to get through today and to follow him as he's called us to. So that gives me a great deal of peace. I'm not sure what you're going through right now, or if you've been in a season recently where you're wondering, am I going to make this? Is it going to be okay? I believe that God sees you. We look at Jesus and how he interacted with people, and now through the church, we're able to take care of each other's needs, encourage one another physically, spiritually. What an incredible, incredible gift. But now you you come back to Jesus's reality, and he had just lost his cousin. He had just poured out every ounce of energy in his body to love the people around him well, and now he's tired again. So verses 22 and 23 pick back up, and it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples. That's an emphatic verb there, saying like he basically forced them, you're going to get in this boat and you're going to go. I'll catch up with you later. There's no conversations. There's no wonderings. There's no other option. This is what's happening. Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, and then he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. I think about that importance of those rhythms, of Jesus being alone, seeking his heavenly Father, crying out in prayer. When life is really hard, you're at the end of your rope, and you are completely empty. He goes to a solitary place and he prays to his heavenly father. I need to take note of that. Sometimes when I'm out of gas and I'm tired, I might cope with just a show or whatever, shows, food, staying up late just talking to Bobby. It's not those things are necessarily bad, but there does come a place where I have to consult God in the midst of you know the current circumstances and the situation that I found myself in. And the same is true for you. Make sure you keep inviting the Lord to be part of the scene and the process you find yourself in. That's what Jesus models for us all throughout the Gospels. So Jesus is sad, but it keeps going. And it says eventually Jesus comes to visit them. It says the boat was already a considerable distance from land, and it was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went to them walking on the lake. He went to the disciples, and they saw him walking on the lake. They were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Of course, of all the disciples, it's Peter who's quick to speak. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And then Peter goes out and he keeps his eyes on the Lord. He starts walking on the wind of the waves. But when he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at the distractions of this world, the wind and the waves, he begins to sink and he cries out, Jesus, save me. Jesus says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
You see, when we are of little faith and we're not looking at God, we're focused on fear. We're focused on things of this world. But when we move from fear to worship, it looks like God can do incredible things. <laughs> I'm not guaranteeing that you and I are going to walk on water. Don't, don't go out and try it right now. I wouldn't recommend it. But what God can do in our heart, in our relationships, in our family, in our workspaces, when we focus on him, we say, God, I'm going to worship you in the midst of scary situations, in the midst of uncertain circumstances. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. A while back, I preached that sermon and gave you that line, gaze upon the Lord and glance at your problems. Gaze upon the Lord and glance at your problems and we'll be all right. And Jesus calls us to believe. He calls us to believe. And when it talks about doubt in this passage, because we just talked about this last Friday, if you remember, that when you look at the word doubt, it means to be divided. And so I want to give you grace, and we can nuance this conversation a little bit, where I think it's natural to have questions, it's natural to doubt, but it's the trajectory of our doubt, and what we do with those questions is very, very important. If it leads us to just seeking worldly wisdom, people have no love for the Lord, um, no biblical counsel, that doubt becomes very problematic. We begin to question like the character of God, the legitimacy of God, the legitimacy of the scriptures is this true. But when you wrestle with your questions and you wrestle with God, you have doubts and you wrestle with the scripture and with Christian community, I promise you, you will be all right. That's a part of real discipleship. Bobby and I are convinced that some of the folks who are deconstructing um, today did not have as helpful and authentic of discipleship as we should have had. And that's not a knock on them necessarily. It's more of a knock on the church. If we wrestle with hard questions up front and don't shy away from passages that are maybe difficult to understand, then we'd, we would have a, a framework and a foundation to stand on that makes sense, ultimately on who is God. And from there, how does this translate to our life and our experiences? You notice that it's not our experiences put on God, but it's God into our experiences. And if we have the freedom to ask these questions and not be, you know, divided where we're looking at the wisdom of the world and wisdom of science without scripture or wisdom of therapy without scripture, it can become a beautiful gift. We're guided by therapy and science and God's word and the Christian community. So as I wrestle with, you know, the times I feel like I have little faith and the times I have doubt and the times I'm distracted by the ways of this world, the wind and the waves of circumstances are, are piling up and it's scary. I'm going to encourage you, turn your eyes to Jesus, gaze at the Lord, glance at your problems. We trust that you'll find your way and you'll be okay. So that's what we got here from Matthew 14. God bless you. And we'll talk to you on Wednesday. Lord bless you and keep you. Don't make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give him his peace. Have a great day.